Previously on Story Logical. <laughs> After you work the shame bubble,、mm-hmm. eventually it pops, and then you're ashamed about the mess that it's made. And you've got to get <laughs> like, over that. It probably spills all over the floor, I'm thinking. <sighs> um. Most of us don't have that much shame inside of us. I don't know what. <laughs> But as you pointed、um, out, I am both queer and British, so I've got plenty to spare. Speaking of K-pop, have you seen Hyuna's bubble? No. Is that is that a euphemism for her butt? Yes. Okay, just checking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she pops it. Bubble pop, bubble pop, bubble bubble pop pop. Have you seen her ice cream? I have, and yeah, that is not even a euphemism. That's just a. This is Story Logical, a podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud, and I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick for this week is Miranda July's story, "Man on the Stairs," from her 2007 collection. No one belongs here more than you do. You do. It's not just no one belongs here more than you. <laughs> oh, did I put an extra do on the end of it? No one belongs. Yeah, I did. I did. I anglicised it <laughs> because as soon as you said "you do," I'm like, "Who you do? do? Who do? <laughs> Who do? Who's got the power? <laughs> Who do? What do I do?" I、Who、instantly do? made it way cooler. The man on the stairs is a tiny, tiny little story in the middle of the collection, five pages long, and it's just the in, not just, but it, it's the internal monologue of a woman who's woken up by a noise that she assumes is a man on the stairs coming to attack her. It's a story that is full of <laughs> depression and self-loathing.、Um, in particular, the woman, as she talks, she describes herself as a as a drag. Right? Not only does she think she's a drag, but she's made a three-point list as to yeah, the evidence、yeah. that supports her belief that she's a drag. So, yeah, she coats coats reality with a draggy film-like substance. <laughs> like like she's secreting it as she slides. Well, by. she she at the very least she is exerting a lot of energy imagining the form in which her dragginess takes. She says, "I think I have a handle on it now." There are three main things that make me a drag: I never return phone calls. I am falsely modest. I have a disproportionate amount of guilt about these two things, which makes me unpleasant to be around. And I was like, "Wow, yeah. If that is if that is your assessment of yourself, I bet you are kind of a drag." Because you think those three things are draggy, or because you think if she thinks she's unpleasant to be around, she probably is unpleasant <laughs> to be around. That's what is the drag. <laughs> Like, okay. I, the re- the reason I started here is because it reminded me of save me lemon、uh, pops. One of the speakers I saw at the Tableau conference this week, a lady called Maria Konnikova, who talked about the the biases that that con men use to trick us and to use our cognitive failings against us. And she was talking about the exceptionalism bias and how everybody rates themselves as higher than average in pretty much whatever skill you ask them to assess themselves on, unless. You're clinically depressed. In which case, the results of the self-assessment are usually extremely accurate and and match what other how other people assess you. And so, I, and that's what made me think of in this story. Like, she's clearly depressed. She's making this assessment. I would probably think she was kind of draggy too. So the the person you saw、uh-huh. said that studies showed that clinically depressed people's、uh, depiction of themselves、mm-hmm. was extremely accurate. It matched. The way other people also assess them, right, right, and whether or not, other, yeah, right, whether or not right, that actually can constitutes accurate, but still, and that of itself, that is intuitively terrifying. Yeah, because what you were what you were putting out there is that there's some scientific study that says, look, depressed people, if you believe everyone hates you, you're probably right. I don't, I don't know if that. I mean, I don't think the, it really. I don't think you can infer that if she did just say that their their assessment of their own abilities in relation to other people. 
So it wasn't about whether or not they're liked or disliked. It was like, do I have the ability to... But, but in relation to other people, exactly, like what... Yeah. what um, how are okay. my mathematical skills? How are my social skills? How are my whatever other skills? I had, a, I had a thought when I was reading this story. Is that in some ways, because the story is so short, and because the story entirely takes place in, in that way that you know, some short story teachers would tell you short stories should take place, which is like in a moment, like the entire world is in this one moment, which in this case is a woman in her bed. And there's a guy coming up the stairs. This moment is everything. And so it, it made me think about that question you get asked in English class, I assume in England, as much as in the US, I, which I is, know. I quit English as soon as humanly possible. You know, what does it mean? Like, what does this represent? So in this oh, case, yeah. like, what does the man on the stairs represent that like the idea that you have to read all of short stories are about something other than what they're about, which they are. But but it made me think, so is this story, which is a woman in a bed thinking that a man is coming up the stairs, does it does it work on a level outside of any symbologicalness? <laughs> any kind of symbology? Any kind of symbolism? <laughs> symbolism? Yeah, I know. I'm just thinking of other words that can be symbolic of symbolism. Uh, symbolitude. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I was like, yes, yes, it, it does work. Uh, two things. One... There is literally mounting tension in the story because the <laughs> because sound is coming up the, the stairs. stairs. Yeah, yeah, mounting up the stairs. And it works in the way like, that like Hitchcock said that sus uh, suspense should work, which is you should immediately know there's a bomb under the table and then you should go back to watching two people talk over their dinner mm -hmm. thinking, when is the bomb going to go off? Why doesn't anyone notice there's a bomb? And so in the same way in the story, you immediately hear the sound of the person on the stairs or you hear the sound immediately. And then you get her immediate interpretation that there's someone coming up. And then she keeps running away, keeps pulling away from the experience of terror that is going on. She keeps pulling away from the terror of the person climbing up the stairs mm -hmm. to think about her life. So it is that kind of perfect Hitchcockian uh, device of, you know, something terrible is coming, but people keep just not doing anything about it. And withdrawal is such an important aspect, not just of this story, but of all of the stories in the in the collection. So in this story, she's convinced she's going to die. She's convinced her and her partner are under threat from this guy. And yet she says she still keeps falling asleep between noises. Like, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> she is the worst. Well, um... But the, the, and there's another story where one of her neighbors has um, an epileptic attack and she falls asleep nuzzled on his shoulder. And when his wife gets home, his wife is clearly very angry that she hasn't been trying to help him in any way medically. But it, it really speaks to that kind of, um, that fear of, of taking responsibility, of, of taking action in the face of danger, right? She, she just has this kind of, tortoise response of just pulling everything inside and being like if i shut down it's all gonna go away yeah well yeah yeah shut down or or imagine some other reality which yeah. which is similar to shutting down but shutting down with uh, a better interior decorator uh, <laughs> because you get something cool to look at while you're hiding uh, uh one of the things she says early on in the story when she she felt like she was trying to wake up her husband by tapping on his wrist she said i was trying to invent a language that would enter his sleep but after a while, I realized I wasn't even squeezing his wrist. I was just pulsing the air. And that was a moment where, you know, she, she says specifically, like, she thinks that she's trying to wake him up, but she's not. Which got me thinking, why is she afraid to wake him up? Why is she afraid to face this? And she goes on 
to basically tell you. She was like, I, I stopped trying to awake my husband because I was afraid that the person on the stairs would hear my husband waking up and then know how vulnerable we are. But then, of course, it's her in the bed that's afraid of knowing how vulnerable yeah. they are because she goes on to explain all the things that she's worried the man on the stairs would find out if she yeah. woke up Kevin. Whereas but those actually, are, but those are all things that only she could know and she is worried about facing. That whole relationship seems pretty fucked up. The fact that he's so much older than her and she's had a crush on him since the age of 12. And then when they go on her on their first date, 12 years after or 13 years after she first got a crush on him, she wears the dress that she bought when she first started crushing on him, which is seriously out of date by now. And yeah, yeah, also yeah. like a decade inappropriate for her, presumably. So the wise thing that Yoda said about this. Oh, yeah. We've been at least three podcasts since you've mentioned Yoda. I haven't mentioned so Yoda. You should, you should I got get Yoda in, in here. Uh, he says to Luke at one point in Empire Strikes Back that, that never his mind on where he was, on what he was doing. And the story is working so well in such a tight space because her relationship is built around a crush that she nursed on someone for decades so, like, she had this fantasy in mind of, of this person she was going to be with, and she stuck with it until it she got true, it. Yeah. And then, you know, she found out it wasn't so great. And then she describes her friends as, I had this image of these are the friends I was going to have. But then her friends didn't measure up. And in the same way, here's this uh, kind of dawning terror climbing up the stairs. And at every moment that she begins to think about it, she immediately begins to imagine what this man might look like. You know, does he have a gun? Does he have a knife? Does he have a large rock? Mm-hmm. Is he disabled? Is that why he's going so slow? <laughs> um, Maybe he's just really tired from having killed everybody else on the block. And the and then the final image of the story is 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 a final a final hit of that same motif because when she sees the person on the stairs, she realizes once her eyes adjust that it is a man, an ordinary man, a stranger, and that I like collapsed it in my head because in the same like that that calls all the way back to Kevin that Kevin is just this ordinary guy that is a stranger to her that she hasn't been able to face she can't really face anything right she the right at the end she said I would rather die than laugh when she's describing one of their dates and you think yeah not not just that but you would rather die than engage with any of the the emotions that you're feeling rather than be able, you know... Right, right, yeah, yeah. It, I felt like you could just turn that line about I would rather die than laugh around very easily in this story, which is she would rather die than scream. Mm-hmm. So rather than make any noise, she would just prefer... Cause, uh, in fact, she, she seems to welcome the death well, she, that's coming she welcomes to her, it, right? But what's interesting is that while she welcomes it, she does not hurry it on, because it is true that if she made a noise, the person might come faster. But it's like she would prefer to die slowly rather than all at once because yeah that is how most of us work that you're afraid to die even if you want to die and i was like yeah yeah that's why you have to not be afraid of death because the only way you can change who you are is to not be afraid to die uh to go back to does the story work if it's not symbolism i do like how it works as symbolism, because the man on the stairs does work story, storily yeah. as just this creeping realization, because she realizes more and more as the guy gets closer, and that whereas at the beginning of the story, she couldn't whisper to her husband anything, at the end of the story, she does whisper to the stranger to get out, to get out of my house. Yeah, that's the only, the only active thing that she does, really is eventually she manages just to whisper to him to go away. Yeah, yeah, which maybe it works. I mean, the the last line 
easily read that it does not. Mm. Um, I liked how the way that she kept not being able to focus on the guy coming up the stairs, that even though in those moments she was focused on Kevin, that you can imagine that in, a, in, in the mirror of this reality, which is her everyday life, she would have these uh, mounting realizations about Kevin, but then just focus just, and yeah, dream about something else. Yeah. It reminded me a little bit of the silence in Doctor Who, you know, and the, the creatures that make you forget them. And then you, you just come around and you'd be like, Oh, I've I've got another mark on my arm. That means I must have seen them again, but but I couldn't <laughs> hold it in my brain. Terrifying. That's one of the things about epiphanies. You can't hold on to them. My pick <laughs> for this week. Don't do it in that voice. <laughs> <laughs> my pick for this week is Presence by Helen Uyemi, which is in her collection. What is not yours is not yours. There's my favorite kind of title because it just says itself twice. Uh, and it's just up to you to figure out why. So Presence is the story of Jack and Jill. Not that Jack and Jill. Actually, the guy's name is Jacob, but they joke about how it's a bit like Jack and Jill. The way the story works, it begins, Jill Ackerman's husband had been wanting to have a talk with her for weeks, and she was 200% sure that it was going to be an unpleasant one. That's where we begin. There's some kind of marital troubles going on. What's going to happen with Jill and Jacob? Are they going to stay together, or are they going to break up? And the story follows that path for a little while as we get to know who Jill and Jacob are, that they're learning that they're both psychologists, learning uh, of some importance of a cheesy K-pop song to their life about their past marriages, which have all failed. And then the story turns because the thing that Jill's husband wanted to talk about was not getting divorced, but just wanting to take their uh, summer holiday to run his experiment which he calls presence, which is where by locking people in homes and pumping in some kind of strange gas, you can make people experience the presence of departed loved ones or other people. And it so it doesn't sound like uh, it's going to pass the ethics committee. Uh, let's put it like no, that. No, no, it doesn't. And the story doesn't care. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like, and the story just turns and goes that way. And now it is a ghost story, but not necessarily a ghost story with dead people. A different kind of ghost story. Yeah, I that was it is so beautifully and perfectly a story of two halves. Like the first part of it is this fascinating exploration of Jill and Jacob and and their their history and their current marriage. And then in one par in the space of one paragraph or one break between the paragraph, it turns into a gothic horror. And suddenly the pace changes you become wildly disorientated as as Jill dives into this. Disorientated ex- is that is that not no, the one? Disoriented. <laughs> really, I think disorientated <laughs> might be the British version. Brit- British people treat um, us in support of me. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just hashtag it aluminium. <laughs> yeah. So she she dives and she, she starts this experiment, and she no longer knows where she is or what she can trust or or kind of who she is at a fundamental level. She has fears about her marriage, about the children she never had, and about her partner having an affair. And so you go from this very interesting but very prosaic discussion of uh, uncertainty and fear and paranoia and trust to this full-blown racing steam engine kind of discussion of it that really cracks Jill open and who she is and how she works and I thought it was so beautiful the way those two halves set against each other. 
Yeah, yeah, the, the, the words you said, uncertainty, paranoia, trust, those are things that run throughout this collection. And, and you know, we were having dinner with a friend uh, a week or so ago, and, and he was talking about how this whole collection is about secrets. But it's kind of not just about the secrets we keep from other people. It's also about the secrets we keep from ourselves and also the secrets about other people that we imagine to be real and then take from them and put in ourselves. That's and so, not troublesome at all. No, it's not. And exactly. And so this story, like so many stories in the collection, are about the troubles of, of being seen and seen and how it's really difficult to understand the image of yourself that other people see and to understand that the image you have of other people is not necessarily who they are. And in this story, it gets worked out a few different ways. It gets worked in the very beginning. Jill is frantic over the conversation she believes her husband is going to have with her. And that's why I love she says she's 200% sure, because she is 100% sure what she thinks it's going to be and 100% sure what she knows he thinks yeah. it's going to be. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't even need him to be there. I think that speaks to what I wrote down about, about trust, right? The ability to trust other people comes in part from the ability to trust yourself. And the ability to trust yourself comes from experiencing that as a young person. And, th and the story pretty much opens with how they didn't really experience that. They didn't really measure up as kids because they both went through foster care and were constantly being told that they, they didn't have, they didn't fit. They weren't valuable as human beings. Uh, one of the things that uh, Helen described them as is for most of our lives, she and Jacob had both been afraid of the same thing, not being deemed worthy to share a home with a family. And there, there is a little bit of what is not yours is not yours. They're not afraid of not being worthy. They're afraid of other people not deeming them as worthy. Yeah, because they're course, incapable of making of giving themselves that value. That's that's what self esteem well, is. Well, yeah, and that's yeah, and that goes back to to seeing and being seen, and and maybe even secrets to a certain extent that um, you are entirely who is capable of giving you that self-esteem. You are the only person capable of giving right, yourself. But, but maybe but, it's one of the things that gets broken. Can I ask you about K-pop now? Is is the 2AM song they talk about a real song? No, no, song? no, that's, that's the girl band. I, so the 2AM is a band? 2AM is a girl band. 2PM okay. is the boy band. Okay. Let's, let's get, the hottest time <laughs> of day is not 2AM. It's 2PM, and that's the band, not a particular song. 2PM is a yeah boy band. Oh, I feel I feel like I need to go back and read it again because I was convinced <laughs> it was a song. Well, one of the other things that's in this collection and in this story is how difficult it is to negotiate boundaries between yourself and between someone else. And that's what's really great about it turning into a gothic story because that's the thing about ghosts. They don't give a fuck about boundaries. <laughs> they have no boundaries, literally they, no boundaries. They, they're just going to float back and forth. And, you know, one of the, the first images that Jill is haunted by during this section of the story is not someone dead. It is not uh, someone from her past, exactly. It is a shadow of Jacob. It is the thing that was there at the beginning of the story yeah, when she was Jacob, like, I am absolutely sure exists. that, yeah, she is, yeah, exactly, as the Jacob that she is convinced exists and which what is not yours is not yours. Hopefully there's a boundary between her and him and he exists as who he is. And no matter how much she thinks that there's a there's another Jacob. We all do that. We have the image of other people in our head, which exists as a as a shadow or a puppet. It's either a shadow cast by our fear or like a puppet whose strings are pulled around by our doubts about the other person. That shadow is one of the things that makes it 
it really hard to go back to your parental home because your parents have this construct of you, or at least mine do, uh, around the age of about 13. And you have a very strong construct of them. And it's very difficult to, to understand, to appreciate, to allow them to exist outside of whatever that construct is that you form. Yeah, yeah. I think that is true for everyone. That is why it is kind of the peak of wisdom that what is not yours is not yours. That the the constructs other people have of you do not belong to you. They are not yours. The constructs you have of other people, that is what belongs to you. The other people don't. Like your your fantasies, your fears, those are things that are yours. Uh, and what is true in Miranda July's story is true here as well, that all of that effort you spend in fantasizing and projecting your doubts and fears onto other people is time and space that is being stolen from your ability to connect with those other people and to connect with yourself because mm -hmm. you are not looking at what is yours. You are putting what is yours over, you're just throwing it out there, <laughs> <laughs> seeing if it sticks on anybody. I think it links to the other thing I wanted to talk about as well, which is repetition and the way, part of the way that certainly I operate with my family and some other families I've seen do this is, is, is they have modes of conversation which get repeated and it's different rituals in different homes but they serve to kind of dig you into a furrow or a groove from which it's really hard to step out of um helen uses these kind of repetitive ideas especially in the in the gothic horror part when it's always twelve thirty. everything she does is happens at twelve thirty, or it's about to be twelve thirty, and you just get this sense that no matter what she does, she can't step outside of this kind of prison of time, of being, of, of telling her who she is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's perfect. Yeah. And in, and in kind of what, what takes the story into the gothic place, both literally in the story, what the characters have to do and us reading it, is Jill and Jacob going through a series of repetitions of a conversation they have that reinforce images that they have of each other, uh, irrespective, is that a mm -hmm. word? Yeah. Irrespective of who they really are, that amazing bit where the characters are going over this conversation over and over, Helen is bringing that in throughout the story in the Gothic part, along with the 1230, to kind of work a spell on us by, by doing this repetition. Not only is this an incredible story, An incredibly constructed structured. story yeah. with interest, like amazingly interesting people amazingly that are, that are tearing people. apart themselves uh, for our benefit. But then she just sprinkles these beautiful pearls of language across it. So there's one sentence that when she sees the the image of the sun that they never had, she had to quickly pop back to the 15th century to find a word for how beautiful he was. He was makeless. I don't know if that's how you present, pronounce the 15th century word. It could be makeless, I suppose. I've, I've heard chatter on the internet that some people are frustrated with this collection because the way this story works is the way so many of the stories in the collection work, which is exactly the turn that you describe, where they are one thing and then they just become something else. Uh... And I think two things. One, like exactly like you said, all, always the two parts of the story speak to each other. I think the other thing is that in this collection that's dealing with, with, with secrets, yes, and with boundaries that we build within ourselves and between each other, that it's not hard to imagine that these stories which refuse to exist as we might demand them to be, that this unsettling nature, is it gets at the heart of the unsettling nature of dealing with other people who, despite our best and worst wishes, they always insist on remaining themselves. They're always going to take that turn in the same way that the most infuriating thing in the world is one, 
when people surprise you and are not who you think they are, and two, when people insist that you remain who they think you are, no matter who you are. That's what these stories do. These stories are like, I don't care what you think I am. Mm. I'm going to do what I want, and you're just going to have to deal with it because this is my story. It's not your story. This story reminded me of something that Neil Gaiman said that I could not find, and then I realized it was something Neil Gaiman said uh, to his clarion class in 2008 that I heard someone else tell me. So it might be completely wrong, but it was something like, it's very hard as a writer because you want to tell the reader everything. You want to make them see everything the way you see it. But this doesn't work. You can't make people see what you see. You can only crack the door open a bit and hope that perhaps your readers will decide what's on the other side is worth opening the door the rest of the way. Stories, I think, only work best when writers give readers only as much as they need to be inspired. And then we have to let go. We have to leave the reader room enough to make art because the magic is in the gap between what we write and what they imagine. And I was thinking, that's such a good description of love, of of so many things, that like in this story, these characters are failing to give themselves and each other enough room to be and to fall in love. Thanks for listening. Uh, As always, we have probably not managed to talk about all the amazing things in these stories. Yeah, nor nor have we discussed all the different versions of these stories that exist and all the different versions of reality (laughs) that exist in our quantum conceptualization of existence. So if you want to get in touch with us (laughs) and tell us uh, your opinions or give us some recommendations. From whatever pocket universe in which you find yourself... Um, and if you could refer to it by its standard galactic reference. Yeah, so yeah, we please, know. please hashtag your tweets with what universe you are tweeting from. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Storylogical. Which is story. Like the word. And oh. Um, like something I'll come back to. <laughs> <laughs> That's good because it's a circle. Oh. And logical. Like the theory of relativity. You can follow... Emma on Twitter, she is at E.G. Kosh. That is spelled at E.G. Kosh. <laughs> and you can follow him on Twitter at Kuvols. If you have enjoyed listening, then we would love it if you would head over to iTunes and leave us some of your enjoyment in the shape of a review. For show notes, appropriate gifts, a chance to subscribe to our newsletter and this podcast, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storyological.com. See you next week, readers. Happy reading. Emma. Yes, my petal, my sweet, my light and literature love of my life. (laughs) What is the hottest time of day? 2 p.m. Okay, just checking. (laughs)